You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Francis Ford Coppola has the conversation with Jack. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani, delicately listening to all of my sound equipment to make sure that everything is nice and tight. And I am Adam Thomas, and I saw a tiger, and a tiger saw a man, motherfuckers. <laughs> I can't help it, man. <laughs> and immediately placing this episode firmly. And this is a reference, of course, to Tiger King, the Netflix yeah. uh, miniseries documentary, uh, which I've also seen and is quite amazing. We're not talking about that on this show, but we would definitely recommend it for yeah, especially your, your uh, COVID 19 quarantining. It's perfect distraction yes, viewing. It is. Yes, and especially I've been to Big Cat Rescue, which is quite fascinating now. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> We're not talking about that. We're talking about a very different subject on the Double-Edged Devil Bill, which, if you're new, basically every week we uh, discuss a good and a bad feature that's randomly selected at the end of the previous episode, uh, based around a general topic, and we'll be doing that at the end of this episode for our topic next week, so stay tuned for that. But uh, this week we're doing, uh, in honor of, on this very day we're releasing this episode, it is the 81st birthday of a filmmaker we've talked about doing for the entire history of this show, Adam, and I'm very excited to be doing him now. It's Mr. Francis Ford Coppola, so happy birthday, Francis. Hope you're drinking your wine in celebration. Oh, I'm sure he is. I wonder if he's got like his all his crazy nephews and everybody else over there with him, like Nick Cage and Jason Schwartzman just getting ripped. Um, excuse me, one, social distancing, Coppola family, especially you guys. Like, there's too many of you. <laughs> if one of you has it, God knows. Nicholas Cage can't be killed by conventional diseases. I mean, but how many people does he interact with on a daily basis? He has, he shoots like 15 different movies a day. Oh, yeah, dude, at least. He, or either that or he was the original carrier. And <laughs> we've been fed lies. Maybe. <laughs> He's the one. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But uh, we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola, who um, we've wanted to discuss for so long because whenever we do a director as a discussion topic, it's always interesting to take a look at the context of their filmography. And uh, there's a lot loaded into the history of a Francis Ford Coppola in terms of uh, one of the most celebrated filmmakers of sort of the new age of Hollywood, um, where people were coming up like uh, he was friends with people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. He produced the first two films for George Lucas, kind of arguably got him on the path that would take him to Star Wars and such. And then Coppola, of course, made a bunch of great classic movies um, like the two Godfather films, Apocalypse Now, and then one from the heart which is a movie he devoted a lot of money into from his American Zoetrope company that produced stuff like American Graffiti and THX-1138, amongst other things, the two George Lucas movies. That movie bombed so hard that it cost him, like, basically a decade's worth of time to, like, try and make up the money that he loaned out for that, and he was never quite the same filmmaker after that point. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's quite obvious. He, I mean, you got to figure, like you said, the guy hit it big with three 
American classics. I mean, they are absolute, not even American, just classics of cinema. You'd be hard-pressed not to find too many people in their top 25 list of all time that at least one of those isn't included in there. Uh, a lot of people, their top 10 has at least one of those. But yeah, then he just kind of uh, shit the bed a little bit after that. I mean, he had a couple gems here and there, but... Well, right, right. I think a big part of that, of course, is sort of the the madness that took place in the production of Apocalypse Now, um, which definitely yes. I would recommend watching the documentary Heart of Darkness, which I hadn't seen until actually we were doing research for the show here, um, and is a fascinating documentary, just detailing how much of a massive inflated ego that guy had, um, to, the, to the point where basically... I think anybody who's, like, parroting the concept of, like, an overzealous director is basically parroting Francis Ford Coppola from that particular production. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. You know, the thing is, and I think, I gotta be honest, I don't know that I've seen Apocalypse Now straight through from front to end. I've seen it in pieces to make a full movie. Uh, it's just, anytime I start to watch it, it's like... It's, it's kind of daunting or I'd have, you know, something come up and it's like, oh, I'll get back to it. And I just always forgot to get back to it. But I have seen that documentary and it is quite a fantastic documentary. But what was the first Coppola film you remember seeing? Oh, probably Godfather 2, I think was the first one. And then I went back and watched the first. Just because my dad was a big De Niro fan and a big Brando fan. So he had me watch, I think, that one with him and then i went back and watched the first well for me i definitely remember it being the first two godfather films because naturally the italian last name might include you in that um my dad maybe watched those two movies in particular he had like the big vhs like i think it was like four vhs's wait a minute you're italian uh yeah i gotta sit you down man that's it's true i, I got uh me familia my blood it's it's a very uh red, red saucy i thought you were like west african or something uh, clearly Skin yeah. tone was very obvious about that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, crazy. What I found fascinating about Francis Ford Coppola as a filmmaker is, like, even in that period where he's trying to be, like, a commercial director, or even with, like, the Godfather movies, like, when you look back at, at least from a modern perspective, they don't seem like the most commercial movies necessarily. But I think it's mm -hmm. because they're, like, big, sprawling epics, but at the same time, he likes to like, sort of look at it from the humanist point of view, and sort of, like, the character interactions kind of grounds everything. I think even in something like The Outsiders, which is probably, I'd argue, like, his most conventionally commercial movie has a lot of uh, experimentation with like the way that certain shots are constructed or even something that was a big box office success that I'm baffled by honestly is a movie we covered previously Bram Stoker's Dracula like I can't believe that was actually a commercial movie at all <laughs> given how weird that fucking movie is I know dude it's so bizarre but you know I'd argue that that's probably his better of the last the last part of his career I, I think that's probably his finest work since maybe Apocalypse Now, maybe the movie we're talking about. I mean, it's, it's, I love that fucking movie. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about, we, we had praised that quite a bit. Um, but yeah, and it's also interesting just cause he's still technically working. He still does make some stuff, but he always likes to experiment, do weird things. Like we almost covered Twixt on this show and the original story of how that movie was supposed to be like a roadshow thing with like a live orchestra and like, it was supposed to like change depending on like the screening and stuff like that. Like even like certain scenes were going to swap out and stuff like that. He's still experimenting wholesale. Like even though his latest project is some kind of like big experimental roadshow production he's doing about like three generations of an italian family over the course of like 30 years so he's still always trying something weird which i gave him credit for especially an old fuck like him like you don't see other people trying this shit yeah i hope it's good it just it sounds to me like it's a 
I don't know, man, old man, old director trying to just hang on and and prove that he still got it. And I, I I'd argue that maybe this one he doesn't. We'll see. I mean, of course, I'm going to watch it, but I, I got no hopes for that one. I don't know. I think I, I haven't seen his most very recent stuff. He's only made like three films in the last twenty years or so. Um, one of them being Twixt. Um, but I haven't, um, you know, seen all of the recent stuff he's done. But I just think it's at least fascinating to see somebody experiment even at that older of an age. Like compared to say, like a George Lucas who said, like after he sold off Lucasfilm, like, oh, I'm going to make experimental films. And we haven't heard anything from that dude except occasion where he's just like, yeah, Disney's like a bunch of white slave owners. <laughs> the way they sold me is Star Wars. What? That happened around the time of, like, The Force Awakens. He said that. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And it's also kind of like what you said before in terms of the, the Coppola dynasty, as it were. Like, it kind of starts with him and then trickles down to people like Nicolas Cage, who we actually gave his start a little bit early. Like, he's in... I, I watched, actually, for this show as well, uh, Rumblefish, which I hadn't seen before, and it's a very interesting movie. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that one either. It's a weird... It was like a companion piece he did with uh, The Outsiders. It's uh, written by the same person who wrote the original novel of uh-huh. uh, The Outsiders. It's sort of a weird, like, kind of ex- more experimental, black and white... Uh, but about the same kind of, like, gang violence thing. Um, Mickey Rourke's in it, and so is Matt Dillon. But it also has Nicolas Cage in a very, very early role of his. Uh, so, yeah, there's that trickles down even with, like, Sofia Coppola, and obviously the Talia Shires. Like, so many Coppolas running around. Yeah, like I said, Schwartzman. Yeah, Schwartzman, yes. You know, Sofia Coppola, she's, she's nothing but if an interesting... Uh, filmmaker. I mean, she's definitely got her own voice. Not necessarily the biggest fan of hers, but she has put out some stuff that's, you know, at least always going to be interesting. Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation alone, I'm like, can't yeah. see anything she does. But we're talking about Francis, of course, and we're talking about two very different films uh, from two very different eras of his career. Uh, we have, first off, uh, The Conversation from 1974, which was my good pick that was picked last time, and then your bad pick from 1996 of Jack. And so let's go ahead and start off though with the conversation. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. Do you think we can do this? Harry Cole is an expert. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. Gene Hackman in The Conversation. Can you hear me? So, uh, The Conversation uh, came out April 7th, 1974, which was the birthday of Francis Ford Coppola, and also the day we're releasing this episode, so it's the 46th anniversary of that movie coming out today, as we're putting this out. Whoa! Very interesting timing. Scary. Yes, and it was actually the film that he made in between the two Godfather movies. This actually came out the same year as Godfather Part Two and was nominated for a few Oscars that same Oscar season, including Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Sound. So Coppola literally won an Oscar from himself <laughs> for the Best Picture category. For part two. <laughs> <laughs> he was robbed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, it, it's very interesting because this is one that, like, you know, when you're coming up and you hear about, oh, Francis Ford Coppola, one of the great directors, and you hear about the first two Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now, sort of in that era, 
not many people talk about the conversation, and that's where I kind of like discovered this movie when like searching IMDb or whatever. I'm like, what's this movie? I never heard of this. Gene Hackman's in. Oh my god! And if you don't know, basically, it follows Gene Hackman, who plays Harry Cole, who is this guy that does a lot of surveillance, and it mainly focuses on him recording this one particular conversation at the start, and then analyzing it for this particular job that he's like supposed to hand over the tapes for. But he's worried because of his own past and handing off tapes, they end up getting people you know murdered later on. That like this might happen the same way to this couple who he's been analyzing the conversation of, and he's also very much an introvert who doesn't hang out with people because of his own sort of internal demons. He feels like he can't really get close to people, and I love this movie, and I wish more people would, like, really discover it, and I'm including yourself, Adam, and this is the first time you've seen it, yes, for the show? Yeah, uh, yeah, actually. Uh, in fact, the only thing I knew about this movie, because I had, had heard it before, I wasn't aware it was a, a, a Coppola movie or anything like that, all I knew was there's this loose fan theory that Gene Hackman's character in this is the same character that he plays in Enemy of the State. Right, to the point where certain, like, when there's a point in Enemy of the State where they show, like, oh, here's this guy's past, the actual photos are from this movie. From this movie, right, right. exactly. And he's even got, I think, like, a, a version of the same glasses and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's literally all I knew about it. And then when it started up, and I'm, you know, Gene Hackman. Holy, yeah, well, yeah, I knew he's in it. Harrison Ford? What the fuck? Yep, very early <laughs> Harrison like, Ford as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, yeah, dude, I mean, I was uh, I was pretty hooked, like, within the first, I'd say, five minutes. I'm like, oh, what is going on? The audio, It deserved the Oscar for sound. I mean, there's no question. Oh, yeah. The sound design in this movie is fucking fantastic. That alone can hook you because uh, you're, you're almost like trying to decipher and, and figure it out with them in the movie in the very beginning, you know, and it's just, yeah, I was thoroughly, thoroughly, uh, impressed by this one. I, this is, this type of movies right up my alley too. I love these sort of spy espionage type movies where nobody's as they seem and everybody, you can't trust anybody and so on and so forth. Right. And the fascinating thing though, about this one is that our main hero really isn't a spy and really isn't much of a hero necessarily. He's very much this sort of like guy for hire who like, analyze things but for total like pure apathy like he has no real connections to anybody that includes like any of the people he's analyzing and it shows in so many like wonderful ways i think in a way that's oddly very different for like gene hackman as we kind of know his persona because when you think gene hackman you think oh uh, the french connection popeye doyle like badass police chief or um any of these other characters he's played down the line like lex luthor or even down to royal tenenbaum they're characters that they might not be the most, like, fierce, dominating person, but they have, like, a true sort of confidence about themselves and are, like, completely domineering in any scene versus Harry Call is a meek individual, but in a way that's so fascinating. Yeah, he definitely is, but he, he still has a sort of an air of authority and ego to him as well. Like, you know, you gotta figure he goes to that convention and everybody wants him to try out their new gear and get pictures with it. And, you know, everybody knows who he is. He's the basically the most famous, like, innovator in his field. But it's all by reputation. It's not necessarily by his actual personality. No, right. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, his personality is kind of shitty. Like, I don't know if it's, you know, a sort of like social anxiety or insecurity or whatever, but he's kind of a prick. So, yeah, it is kind of a different character to see in the terms that like his dickishness and stuff, because we've all seen Hackman play a dick and a rough character. But in this, it comes across as like a vulnerability. To where, like, he that's his cross to bear, and he's, you know, not necessarily comfortable being with other people and things like that. Everything's got to be a certain way. 
and uh, obviously it proves that he can't he doesn't really have any sort of lasting relationships in the movie, be it with the females or even his coworkers. So yeah, it was definitely a, a, quite a different uh, part for Hackman, and I, I mean obviously Gene Hackman he crushed it anyways. Oh my god, especially the the whole sequence um, where he meets up with Terry Gar who is somebody that lives in his building and is sort of like this um, person he has an on and off relationship with. And every time he goes over there, he keeps like making sure to say like, I, I don't want you to ask any questions. Like she keeps trying to get somewhat close to him and actually know something about him. It, it turns him off to even like express any like actual concrete details about his life. It's kind of brutal, but in a way that like, it totally makes sense for like, I, completely see why you know this guy would have this kind of relationship it's so engaging honestly just because it's, it's a guy who like on paper i wouldn't want to necessarily follow him but you get sucked into his perspective and his paranoia the whole movie because you're following him the whole time as he's like recording these people and investigating everything and you're sucked into that perspective so you're even empathizing with a guy who you wouldn't probably empathize with in any other situation <laughs> no I mean, absolutely not he, and, and I think you said it really well. Yeah, he's an ultra paranoid. You get the sense that he might even be a little bit of an agoraphobic. Like, yeah, he goes to that convention. He's out in the van and stuff. But even after the convention, they're all partying. They go back to his place, his you know, his warehouse or whatever. He only likes being in places where he can trust everything around and everything. That's why when the one guy pulls what he does with him, you know, records him with this penny game earlier, like he flips the fuck out. Because he's just not in control in that moment. No, oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that whole sequence also where, like, he's hanging out with uh, the Elizabeth McRae character and how she just, like, is trying to actually get somewhat close to him. That whole sequence and the way that it's shot, especially where it keeps repeating, like, the same sort of, like, 90-degree turn and everything else. Um, and he's very deliberately open up in some way. And the fact that he finds out, like, oh, this has been recorded this whole time and this was some kind of gag or whatever and he breaks that pen and everything, it, it just shows so much that, like, he is a guy, like you said, he wants to be in control of all these points, but also he hates the idea that he had one bit of vulnerability, and it was completely used against him for just a simple gag. I, I don't know, man. I almost got the feeling, like, when the guy put the pen in his pocket that he might have known something was up, just from the way he looked at it. Either that, or he was just offended that the guy even touched him. Because, and then he's like, you know, though that thing's garbage. About the guy's new... Uh, you know, security system or whatever the fuck that he's trying to show off. Like, he just doesn't respect that guy at all. I mean, the guy's there the whole time trying to, you know, oh, come to business with me, come to business with me. You know, you design them, I'll make them. We'll make a ton of money, blah, blah, blah. And then when they, he finds out the guy's been recording him, it's like, you motherfucker in my own place. <laughs> like, it, it was just, uh, it was kind of intimidating a little bit, except that no one but Fredo took him seriously. Right, yes, John Cazale. He was so fucking good, too. God, I love... That guy was so good. The weird fact about his career, that he was only in five movies, and they were The Godfather, Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter, and this. Then he died tragically, and all those movies are like some of the most hailed critical movies of the 70s. It's insane. Of all, I mean, not even just the 70s, of all time. Of all time, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. This is the only one out of those four that nobody knows about, really. Right. Which, like you said, I think it just got lost in the shuffle between Godfather and Godfather 2. Still, though, good on Coppola. He's got two movies competing with each other. But, uh, no, I, I definitely, right after I finished this, I was talking to my brother that night. And I was telling him, like, dude, have you ever seen the conversation or heard of it? He's like, no, I don't know what that is. And I explained it to him. And he's like, how the fuck have I never heard of this? I'm like, I know. He's like, dude, come on. He's like, for real? I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's a real movie. 
<laughs> so, so I think I'm getting people to actually watch it. This could have been on like our underrated episode or underseen episode. I mean, it's crazy that nobody knows about this fucking movie, myself included. No, yeah, especially for so many great like top tier sequences, like the opening sequence of this movie where they actually record the conversation is some of the most perfectly planted, like sound design, as you mentioned, or even just like really great tracking one shots. Like there's a huge giant, like I think it's about three minute or so shot that starts with like the very opening of the, the San Francisco sort of plaza that Gene Hackman's at and all the other people who are recording this conversation are at. And we just follow like either Gene Hackman or a couple who are going around um, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest and Frederick Forrest, you would probably know in terms of Coppola movies. He's been a couple. Um, he was chief in apocalypse. Now the guy with the mustache and what the tiger shows up and all that shit. Um, and he was also the leading one from the heart amongst other things. Well, and Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, from Laverne and Shirley and also from American Graffiti, the movie that Coppola produced for George Lucas. Like, following them and following that whole taping of the titular conversation is, like, immediately putting you in the headspace of, like, okay, anybody in this, like, big, crowded park could be somebody recording this conversation. And I just love how that immerses you immediately in the paranoia of it. It makes you pay attention to the sound, as you're mentioning, like the oh, like every single distraction, like, oh, birds flopping this way, or the band that's playing, and how you can't quite hear certain bits of it, and how over the course of the movie, you hear more and more of that conversation unravel as Gene Hackman listens to every single fine detail. It's a great way of almost showing like detective work in a way that, say, any Batman movie could take notes from. Like, this is how Batman should like investigate any like given audio recording or anything else he has, like sort of the immersive detection that's there. It's, it's a great sequence for all of that. It sort of lets you know, really, without saying much uh, dialogue between like Hackman and his crew, exactly what they do and exactly what they're there for and exactly what their profession is. I mean, they're, they're basically spies uh, or buggers, as they call them in this or whatever. But, they you know, they illegally... Well, I guess it could be legal if it's sanctioned by the government, which you never really know who they're sanctioned by. Like, I, do they ever even say who Duvall and Harrison Ford are? Oh, yeah, speaking of which, Robert Duvall's in this fucking movie, too. <laughs> yep, that's true. Jesus. He's sort of the figure that everyone talks about, and then he shows up at the very end of the movie, which I, I love that, too, that the director character is so mysterious. And then when you actually see him, it's just like always kind of like a pathetic middle-aged man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that angle of it. And also, of course, you mentioned Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, is, it's very young in his career. This is only a year after American Graffiti. He was, like, not too long off of doing Carpentry uh, mm-hmm. from sets and shit. I've never said this before about Harrison Ford, but this is one of the few examples where he's, like, genuinely terrifying every time he shows up. He's absolutely fucking terrifying. The scene where he's following Gene Hackman through after Gene Hackman takes back the tapes, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's scary as shit. Not only that, hey, he's, he is super young. But this is, might be the best-looking Harrison Ford's ever looked, too. He's really cleaned, really put together, you know, wearing a nice suit and everything. Like, he looks great. He's fucking scary as shit. And, of course, he's awesome in it. But, again, do they ever say what they do? Like, they call him the director, so I'm assuming it's, like, CIA or FBI. They never really implement right exactly what their jobs are necessarily. They keep it very hush-hush, which I think works mm-hmm. for just the general paranoia that you're talking about and that is, like, really the backbone of this whole movie. Just really realizing, like, he's the director of some kind of organization, but it could be something really shady, or it could be the CIA, or that's just one and the same in this particular perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah who knows? And um, I, I think that's what only keeps you more on your toes is things, like, continue from this point on, and especially I love the way this movie shifts perspective with who you think the villains are. 
because you're following Gene Hackman. He's like so riddled with guilt about like, oh my god, am I going to lead this like couple who I've recorded to their deaths at, at the hands of this mysterious corporation or the CIA or government organization of some sort? Um, and the way the movie twists that knife is so perfect. Um, especially when we get to stuff in like all the hotel room sequences, feel like something out of a horror movie. Oh, absolutely, man! And he just can't fucking take it. Like he just breaks down as like a child almost. So he's hiding under the blankets and he's, you know, just sitting in the bath. He's terrified. And I will tell you, and all I mean, I'm usually pretty good at seeing little twists coming and stuff like that. Like for the most part, I can kind of really sort of navigate through it. And I did not see this one. Like when it happened, I'm like. Oh, I mean, it totally makes sense. But yeah, I never saw it coming. Also, just a big shout out to the sequence where he goes into the other room after seeing what looked like a horrible bloody murder. And everything mm. looks fine. Everything's put together. Everything's been cleaned up. And just the weird haunted way he like looks around the room. And then he just flushes that toilet. <laughs> and just blood comes coming out. Once again, it's another great sort of horror sequence in this movie. That's genuinely mm. unnerving when it happens. No, yeah, absolutely, I'd agree. And that's also, that's a very beautiful shot, too, the way that whole scene is done, where it's almost like the camera's over his shoulder and it keeps pulling back. It's really, really well done. Yep, as we mentioned, sort of the big twist of the movie, spoilers, everybody, um, genuinely, in terms of no one's seen this fucking movie, so you might not right. actually know this twist. Um, the fact that it is Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest who are planning the murder this whole time, um, and the sort of, the, the way that almost it, it cuts in between, like, them actually committing that murder and Gene Hackman realizing it, it feels so influential to, like, any big twist movie, particularly the 90s. Like, you can tell, like, our usual suspects owes a lot to this fucking movie. Yeah, without a doubt, dude. Uh, I mean, this is another one, like, we did on our Cedaw episode, where you can see the influences from this movie just all over the place still. Uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think this this is, like, almost the prototype or the basis for the formula for those type of reveals now. Yeah, even just in terms of the actual editing of it, which it's actually edited by uh, Walter Murch, who was the guy who edited with uh, Coppola on a lot of things, um, and was also the guy who directed a movie we covered previously, Return to Oz. Oh, yeah, that one. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that shit show. In my opinion, my opinion, go back and listen. I was yes. definitely hated on <laughs> um, but admitting that you gotta respect his uh, sort of editing craft here in particular the editing in this movie is top notch oh yeah dude I mean it's sharp and tight as fuck I mean it's it's fantastic this movie is such a competently well oiled machine where you'd be hard pressed to find anything where you're like well that might not work for me but it even works in sort of this way that it feels mechanical in the same way that, like, Harry Call is as a, like, mm -hmm. a technical specimen. Like, there's a whole shot where, like, he's first going into his completely barren apartment, and he's on the line talking with his landlord, who left him a bottle of wine inside of his apartment, and it's just like, I thought I had the only keys to this apartment. I don't know how you got the wine in here. Um, and the way the camera, like, stays on him walking, and it's very static, and then doesn't move for a while, even as he's having this telephone conversation, and it slowly pans over in this very mechanical, almost like a security camera way. And the movie does that throughout, just for, like, really being very mechanical in a way that mirrors Harry Call. Yeah, no, dude, for sure. It's, uh, the, the only thing that dates this movie is the wardrobe and, you know, maybe some of, like, the cars and the technology, for sure. But it looks, it looks great. It looks fantastic. It looks like, you know, it's clearly a style that's been duplicated and, sort of copied or studied. Like, th this movie is absolutely fantastic looking. 
Well, and especially when you consider the fact that Coppola was doing very big movies at this time. Like, this is sandwiched between the two Godfather movies, which, despite being intimate stories about, like, a familiar relationship, they are big, widespread movies. And then after that, he did Apocalypse Now, which is one of the most infamous over-budgeted movies of all time. This is so small and insular in a way that he would kind of mm-hmm. go back to in some of, like, his 80s movies, like, when, you know, after One from the Heart, he couldn't get huge budgets. So those movies had to be smaller scale. This is a deliberate decision. And Coppola's even said it's his favorite of any of the films he's made because he said it was the only original film he's really ever made. That's true. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Godfather's based on the book. Even, even some people at the time, like this hit into the zeitgeist because this comes out in 1974, uh, only a couple months after um, Watergate. So everyone thought like, oh my God, you tapped into Watergate perfectly. And it's like, no, this is just like, we use the technology from like the people that we, you know, consulted with. It's weird how the, the sort of parallel thinking, like this taps perfectly into the zeitgeist of that very moment. Yeah, it's funny how that works sometimes, too. Do you think that's maybe one of the reasons as well why this is sort of, like, lost to time? I'm just trying to figure out why this movie doesn't have more sort of fans or discussions about it than it does. Well, I think it's partially because, like, of those Coppola movies he was making around this time, it's definitely the least commercial. It's a lot more small and grungier, and like you mentioned, it kind of got swept up in the wake of, like, A Godfather Part Two coming out and making, like, a phenomenal film, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, and I think that kind of just made it lost slightly off to the side, especially as, like, a Gene Hackman kept, you know, getting more and more of a star status up to the Superman movies were not too long after this. I, I just feel like it's too, like, it's not flashy, I think that's kind of what put it off to the desk, especially when you consider, like, Coppola made sort of his biggest name possible as, like, not just, like, oh, he's the guy that made the Godfather movies, but he's the insane man who went off into the jungles to make Apocalypse Now and just made something big and overblown. I I think that kind of also made it feel very much lost into its particular moment, just never really got the spotlight that it deserved compared to these other movies, despite being nominated for some Oscars and stuff like that, which is just a bummer. It, It definitely deserves way more attention than it gets. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that attention even to the point to where when people talk about uh, Francis Ford Coppola movies, this should be mentioned along with the, you know, The Godfather 1 and 2 and Apocalypse Now. I think it's that good. It is literally my fourth favorite of his movies. It's like right after those three movies. Diff- yeah. It's so different Yeah, than those ones. I mean, there's parts of The Godfather you can see in this, like the more intimate sort of character moments and things like that, or even... You know, the Martin Sheen in the hotel room scene where he's sort of losing it a little bit. You can see some of that, but this is just his completely own animal. No, yeah, it definitely is. Right down to, we haven't talked much, but the actual sort of ending scene of this movie is great. Where Gene Hackman's playing his saxophone, which yes, he plays the saxophone. That's his one sort of character quirk that I love. (laughs) Gene Hackman likes to play the fucking saxophone along at jazz records. Um, and he gets a call um, after he's been like investigating and finding out the true twist of the story. And Harrison Ford says, we'll be listening to you. You shouldn't get any more involved than you are. And Gene Hackman proceeds to tear apart his barren apartment in a way that's like stellar. I just love the chaos of that moment. That feels the most sort of like Coppola of this time in terms of like the madness that builds for this particular character and how overboard he goes with it. Uh, I think it's just so tremendous, and it also kind of points out something that's, like, throughout the movie, is how much of this is, oh, there's an actual bug, and how much of this is this guy kind of being so closed off that he's going insane, and there might not be a bug at all. Well, it just shows his paranoia explode into a almost violent sort of level. I mean, it's not violence against anybody, but I mean, yeah, he just literally destroys his entire apartment. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect button, sort of, to this to this movie. Down to him in his underwear, in his deputy department, playing the saxophone. <laughs> yep. 
cro- crowded by rubble. Yep. Yep. It, it's beautiful and it's maddening destruction for sure. Watch a lot of Copa Lubas around this time. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, do our final thoughts on this movie. Adam, your final thoughts on the conversation. I'm very glad that you chose this because I didn't really know much about it other than the couple of the fan theories I read and things like that. And it's, you know, from Coppola, he's such a prolific director and, and made arguably three of the greatest movies ever put to film. And so it was a real treat to sort of see it and sort of see a scaled back film by him uh, at this time with still tinges of his you know, bigger sort of aspirations involved. It's an absolutely fantastic movie. And it's got early performances by some of the greatest actors ever, uh, that ever lived. It's just, it's a really, really good movie. I mean, it's, it's pretty easily findable. Uh, you know, it's even on like crackle. Right. Or, or Amazon prime, which I believe is how we both watched it. Yes, correct. It's, it's a fantastic movie and I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, definitely. If you're somebody who sort of, like, wants to be a completionist or is, like, I love the Godfather movies and I love uh, Apocalypse Now, really want to dig in this guy's filmography, um, what are some of, like, Andrea gems, especially considering how prolific he is, and this is, like, top tier of those hidden gems. Um, it's a phenomenal little movie that has so many great performances, a really different one from Gene Hackman, and has some of, like, I mean, you mentioned the the sound design, I would say is des- would have deserved the actual win because of how key it is, really, to this movie. Um, it's a tremendous little pair annoying thriller that I would definitely recommend to anybody out there. But speaking of things we'd recommend out there, why not an ESO show you could listen to right after ours? We are the Cigar Nerds Podcast. Do you like cigars? Great! We review cigars while talking about movies, TV shows, science, and pop culture news. What? You don't like cigars? Great! Because we also talk about science, movies, TV shows, and whatever's going on in the news. It's what we do. We smoke cigars, and we know things. Find us on CigarNerdPodcast.com. We're also on the ESO Network. All right, now let's get into our bad feature, Jack. Now available to own on video cassette. He's a normal kid. I'm telling you, he's our age, but he looks 40. He just ages four times faster. So I'm big for my age. And he's the biggest thing that ever hit the fifth grade. Hollywood Pictures presents Robin Williams in the story of a boy who made every moment count. Jack. Can Jack come out and play? So, Jack um, is a film that came out in 1996 as directed by Coppola. Not written by him this time. Uh, it was written by two guys, uh, Gary Nadeau and James DeMonaco. That last name might be familiar because he's the guy who created and wrote the Purge movies. You kind of wish somebody comes to your house and takes you out while watching this one. <laughs> this is just... Yeah, so yeah. I guess important in terms of like after the conversations or that 70s heyday period, uh, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, Coppola was kind of struggling in the 80s, made those some interesting films, like we mentioned The Outsiders or Peggy Sue Got Married. But the 90s after like doing Bram Stoker's Dracula and Godfather Part 3, uh, we got Jack, which feels the most like if you can compare it to anything else in his filmography... Um, if you've ever seen the anthology film New York Stories, uh, which is a movie where um, Martin Scorsese, Coppola, and then Woody Allen uh, made three li- little anthology uh, segments, the one that uh, Coppola did was very much a sort of family-friendly one that was uh, co-written by Sophia, who at that time, I believe, was like 10. Oh, for God's sakes. Yeah, it's it's a very much a, like, oh, I'm collaborating with my daughter and doing, like, a kid's thing, so this is what kids want to see, right? And it's a very silly, stupid short that's, like, terrible. 
it feels a lot like Jack. And uh, Jack is uh, terrible. <laughs> That's like Jason Eisner when he used to let Breck Eisner design cartoons and stuff for fucking Disney. You mean it's Michael Eisner? Eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Sophia Coppola, and then she's in Godfather 3, and it's like the worst. Oh, man. Her death scene. Dad? <laughs> but, um... <laughs> she was much better as a director than she ever was as an actress. Yes, we'll say that. Um... <laughs> No, this movie is just horse shit. I, I mean, just pure, un- unadulterated horse shit. I remember seeing this when it, I, I want to say I saw this at the theater. So I was like 12 when this came out. So it's supposed to be the age, basically, of the kids in the movie. Even as a 12-year-old kid, this is terrible. Like, this is, they're just exploiting this kid. <laughs> like, it's, it's awful. It's terrible. It, it's it, it it takes oh man it's <laughs> well because well, like you're going in at that time and you're like Robin Williams the genie guy Good Morning oh, yeah. Vietnam Robin like Williams, a- oh my god yeah I know him he's hilarious go watch this oh he's supposed to be a kid it's real funny no kid acts like that oh boy <laughs> like oh boy this is just offensive the thing I will give the movie to some degree is that for Robin Williams, who this is at a very interesting point in his career, this is really the year before he would win the Oscar for Good Will Hunting, <laughs> interestingly oh, enough. God. I will give credit to, he is at least giving the part a lot of dedication. The concept that if you don't know what Jack is, um, Jack is a story of Robin Williams is Jack, who at the opening of the movie is born extremely prematurely, like her, his mother's like three months pregnant. Um, and he's, but he's a full, healthy baby boy. Yeah, he ages four times fast, right? Right, right. So at age 10, which we spend most of the time with, he uh. is, looks like 40-year-old Robin Williams. That's the gimmick is him going to school and him trying to integrate with other kids. And I think Robin Williams gives this part at least the dedication of, like, he feels like an actual 10-year-old. Not like Robin Williams doing shtick the whole time. Sometimes he does that. Mm, I think yeah, particularly maybe, the treehouse sequence is where it's, yes. like, just full-on. Like, he's doing Which is bits. a whole other problem with that treehouse. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that boy. in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make you want to shut this fucking movie off. That or Fran Drescher's voice. That is. I don't know. Fran Drescher's voice is really like number twenty on the problems of this movie. Yeah, list. no, that's very true. That's very true. A young, very young, and very cute Jennifer Lopez is quite awesome in this. J Lo, dog, she's just Jenny from the block. But but can you at least agree with me on the Robin Williams thing that he's at least kind of trying to be a ten year old this whole time? I think he's the only one who understands the material. I think he's the only one who understands that, dude, we can have fun with this, like this idea. We can literally have fun with it. Because, I mean, he was just a big kid. But nobody else who really understands what kids are like or what they do. And then they take it super serious at times. And you're like, this is just a tonal shift of a fucking... Like, you can get whiplash from the tonal shifts in this goddamn movie. It, right, because there are points where it wants to be like the silly kids comedy. And then other uh-huh. points where it wants to like, actually treat this as a serious drama. Yeah, he's gonna make out with his teacher. He's well, he's trying to he's trying to ask his teacher out to the little kid dance. He kisses her, and then it's like he gets drunk, and then it's like he has a heart attack. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? It's a movie that's really des- like it's designed for nobody because no kid, as you mentioned, you saw it as a kid, and this was not mm-hmm. at all interesting to you. And then the adult Whoa. who's watching this is like able to comprehend any of this. It's like, oh, this is an incredibly sad movie that's not funny either. Why the fuck am I watching this? Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's like, I just... No, this is garbage, dude. It's just, it's just a not a good fucking movie. It, it, 
Ugh. It feels like they kind of had the idea for the ending scene of this movie, which is manipulative as all hell. But, like, they wanted to earn the moment of, like, oh, we have a guy who looks 70, but he's, like, 17, and he's graduating high school. We want to get to this particular moment. But they spend most of the movie with him as this 40-year-old-looking 10-year-old. The whole time mm-hmm. I was watching this, I'm almost just like, the way to have done this movie would be, like, just do Boyhood, where you actually show him progress to that point. I agree. I absolutely agree. And this should have been like 10 minutes of that movie, this whole movie. <laughs> You're right. And still, instead, they, you know, do the whole heart attack thing and he shows back up at school. Surprise! Oh, Jack's back! Yeah, my best friend, Jack! He's my hero, bro. And then he's 73 or whatever the fuck. I don't know. And you're like, wait a minute. What the shit is going on? And his fucking parents. You guys are literally giving that kid a complex. He's like, you gotta stay inside. You're so different. You can't go anywhere. You're different. You play with mommy. You're mommy's special little boy. And then he goes to school. No, I don't want him there. You're not going out anymore. Mommy's special little boy. Is <laughs> as played by Diane Lane. You can hang out with your tutor, Bill fucking Cosby. Yep, we didn't mention that, but Bill Cosby's in this movie as the tutor character. <laughs> oh, it's like, I don't really even want to talk about him because of the fucking piece of shit criminal he is. That, that's true, that's true. But even, like, it's also worth considering, before we even knew he was a massive piece of shit, awful monster of a person, um, mm-hmm. he also was never very good in movies. No, he was good in episodic 20-minute bursts. Or stand-up. Like, otherwise, no. Well, of course. Yeah. But he was never a great actor. And, they, I mean, they, they give him credit. They tried several times, which in hindsight, probably a bad idea. But still, it's – I fucking hate this movie so much, dude. <laughs> like, I don't. I think all the kids are annoying. I think the little kid with the glasses, I want to, like, just fucking field goal him. Who I realized was the little kid from Little Giants who had the similar shtick. The exact same shtick. Yeah. That kid's the same in everything. And yep. then you got, like, the – his main friend, you know, I, whatever his fucking name, some stereotypical Italian kid name, like Polly or some, sh- I'm sure. Who acts like a greaser from, like, The Outsiders, because Coppola's so out of touch. Yeah, completely. And then, like, his mom, the stereotypical, like, Long Island New York lady, but they're not even, like, in New York. It's just, it's fucking just, it, this movie's such a mess and all over the place. And so she sees Robin Williams, right, dressed like a child in this bar, acting like a child in the bar and she's like i'm gonna have sex with him ah. well no you know even before that like she has the whole meeting with him under the assumption that the, his little friend is like hey can you pretend to be the principal because i'm in trouble and call oh, my mom right yeah and that sequence right. and we're like even if like this guy isn't what he actually is which is a 10 year old who looks 40 um it's still really creepy you're hitting on like the school principal in front of your child mm-hmm. yeah she's uh you know an really sort of a, a shit show of a parent. And the fact of the matter is like, so not only are you hitting on your kid's principal in front of him, then you're at the bar and you're going to try to bang him. Like the, just the, the, the amount of damage that could do to just to your kid's psyche. Like imagine if that, if they went through and he was the real principal and everybody at school found out, Oh my God. Yeah. And then opening up the doors of also the fact that this is pedophilia <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, no, you're, exactly. I didn't even want to get into that yet. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, minor consumption. Like, he's just getting drunk. Oh, God. And he buys the kids porn. Like, when you're, like, what? They're, like, in fifth grade? Like, were you that into, like, nudie mags at that point? No, when I was 10, I didn't give a shit about porn, dude. No. (laughs) Like, honestly, I didn't care. 11, 12, 13? Yeah, that's probably when it started. But 10 years old? I'm not going to spend my money on porn. But also, at the same time, are you going to have the whole sequence in the treehouse where you make vomit? 
stuff to like make somebody eat. Yeah. Uh, no, it's like that. Then you're like, they're like six or tw- or 14 years old in this movie. Yeah. Like it's nuts. It's so out of touch with the nineties, but also out of touch with just how children act in general, <laughs> which is weird considering how many children Francis Ford Coppola had. <laughs> Obviously, they have to grow up fast, too. They're writing fucking movies at 10 years old. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, and, and also, just really weird scenes that, like, I don't know why they're here, and they feel really creepy. Like, we mentioned uh, his parents, Diane Lane, and his dad um, having sex in his pretend box. Oh, yeah. Ew. Why? <laughs> I don't know, dude. You got that big-ass house, dude. Just go go to another room. Yeah, this is the one time where, like, big-ass Ron Williams kid isn't trying to get in your bed to, like, sleep next to you. All right. Go fuck in your bed. Oh, sweet. He's not here. Let's go bang in his, like, refrigerator box spaceship. <laughs> there's no flair to it, either. Like, there's nothing in it that sort of blows you away on the even the directorial or cinematography standpoint either although there are weird uh, points where i think he kind of tries to like there's a whole sequence where jack is playing outside as bill cosby's with talking the to the parents right with the with the butterfly specifically yeah the, the beautiful butterfly like oh sweet childhood innocence of this poor boy who looks like robin williams just like playing around joyfully i think there are points where he kind of tries to do that but it feels like you mentioned so out of touch with like yeah, what the movies, with whatever the movie's kind of trying to be, because then he like goes to school, and then he has like a few times where he does like Ron Williams says kitty things like, oh, um, uh, he had diarrhea. It's the, mm-hmm. like talking about the principal and stuff like that. It feels like, hey, Robin, play to like five year olds. Yeah, you're doing exactly. stand up for five year olds. <laughs> exactly. Go. None of it. None of it lands. I, there's not a single joke in this that really lands. I don't even know that when I was a kid there was a single joke that really. Like, made me laugh out loud. I don't think there is. You mentioned the whole idea, like, oh, Robin Williams was, like, a big kid. And, like, we talked about Robin Williams a couple times. We were both fans of Robin Williams when, like, he Mm -hmm. worked. Sometimes he didn't, you know, especially around this period. He was doing weird things that didn't quite work. And uh, while the same... I'm just going to lay it out, okay? Robin Williams doing ethnic impersonations never worked for me. Not only were they typically stereotypical and offensive, but they just weren't funny. No. They're not funny. It's like your drunk uncle at Christmas talking talking about, you know, the new guy working at the factory and how he was only there because of the color of his skin. That's literally what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams doing this type of kid-friendly, sticky humor right. doesn't really work. I'd argue the only time it did is Aladdin or Missed Outfire. Those work because I think it's not that he actually acts like a kid. It's that Robin Williams had the energy of like a 10-year-old. But he was working at that speed while talking about very adult things. Adult things, right. He's an adult, right, exactly. Uh, so, you know, yes, of course I'm a Robin Williams fan. I don't think anybody from mine or even your era can cannot be a Robin Williams fan. I know some people were like, yeah, he was pretty good. But I don't know anybody who outright hates him. Uh, unfortunately, the the two movies of his that we've watched for this show are just – Two of the worst examples. And, and no fault of his, really, in this one. Because uh, obviously he was told just to do this. And the director didn't change it, didn't stop it, didn't. They thought it was fine. And he definitely was just sort of like, well, I'm approaching this from the best possible way I could. It didn't right. like, it was like he's treating this material as seriously as one potentially could. Like, the, the kids aren't that great. Weirdly, the only one that went on to anything of interest, the little girl who's teasing him at one point. But like, oh, I you're know, hairline? she's Black Canary. Right, yeah, it's Black Canary in Birds of Prey. Yeah, she's, she almost steals that movie, too. Wait a minute. Is her brother that guy? Yep. 
and we're not going to go into it, but yes, he's oh, that guy. Oh, no. There's a lot of controversy on this episode. Oh, no, that's, there's a, this movie's like, a, it's, it's like a moth to the flame of <laughs> controversy. Really is, dude. In terms of so it many different really people. Is. Um, even down to, there's a sequence where, uh, we mentioned the treehouse bit, uh, where Bill Cosby is brought up for some reason to this treehouse full of children, and like... To make things with them. Yeah. Uh, uh, and like even removing Bill Cosby being the person also if you're any of those kids it's like Jack we get having you here because you're actually a kid why is your teacher here why, why is this 60 year old dude up here why is this narc here <laughs> get out of here narc 10 year olds <laughs> and they sing Charlie Brown like the old coasters song because that's what kids love it, yeah kids listen to that shit the kids know exactly that song <laughs> and, and yakety yak don't talk back no 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 10-year-old kids in 94 gave a shit about that, those, that music. It's so out of touch. First of all, whose parents let them build this fucking treehouse and just hang out up there? First of all, it had to have taken at least a year. So you let your eight and a half, nine-year-olds build a fucking giant treehouse in the middle of nowhere and just go hang out up there? And it's totally like a studio-designed, like, treehouse. Of course it is. It looks like it's off of the fucking pirate ship in Hook. There's even a point where they, like, dress up as pirates and they throw wa- water balloons and shit. It's fucking ridiculous. Oh, and then not even that, they have all this shit up there. Pots and pans, you know, candles, matches, porn, just whatever the fuck they want. And the parents are just like, yeah, you guys go, do whatever. Absolutely. You want some cooked spaghetti? Where the fuck did they get that from? <laughs> no, it's just off to the side. There's the stove that they installed yeah. into the tree. Yeah. Right off camera is the boiling pot of water. <laughs> There's just a full kitchen attachment. Yeah, just a full on kitchen with like a maid and a professional chef in there. <laughs> yeah. We're already going off on the stupid thing about treehouse that's way more funny. Than anything in this fucking movie. I would rather that be the whole movie and then them just go nuts with it. As opposed to the great jokes we get here, like the, we didn't talk about this, but the whole scene of the bar where Robin Williams is talking to Michael McKean. And they keep going oh, back and yeah. forth about like, oh yeah, my my wife left me and that was in my birthday suit. It was your birthday? And all this other shit, like him not getting Michael it. Keen's, Michael McKean's buying him drinks. Yeah. For some, because that's what people do at bars too all the time. When you just meet somebody, uh, yeah, but you... 40-year-old straight men, Seth would be like, hey, yeah, my wife left me. Can I get you a fucking Shirley Temple or whatever the hell they're drinking? Can I get you a, a Long Island iced tea? That doesn't happen. Well, especially the guy who, like, comes up to the bar and just, like, immediately looks like a child. Yeah, and he's, like, playing he's with like... his fucking... He's making it look like he's got boobs under his shirt and stuff. Yeah. And they're like, oh, this is this guy. This guy's a riot. Let's get him liquored up. Like, it doesn't... This, this movie doesn't know what it wants to be. It, like it, like we said before, it's not for kids. It's not for adults. It, it's it's not even for comedy fans. There, It's so out of touch with any audience is trying to reach. It's so unrealistic and so cookie cutter like Hollywood stereotypes, what they think kids do and how kids are. These kids are the fucking Lost Boys. They're the Lost Boys mixed with the T-Birds. No kids are like this. But this is it. And then you throw a fucking Robin Williams in and tell him to kind of basically tell him, hey, go. Go nuts. And this movie did pretty well, if I remember right. For a $45 million budget, it made $58 million. So it did not do that well. (laughs) (laughs) Good, because it's not that good. But I know a lot of people like this movie. I know people like Patch Adams, which don't even get fucking started. Yeah. Uh, It's just... But I think that's people who are just Robin Williams fans. So, I mean, I kind of get it. 
Right, and immediately after he died, a lot of people looked at rose-colored glasses and, like, all of his worser movies that came out. But I think there's been enough time to realize, like, he made great, you know, movies and stand-up and TV shows, all this other stuff. But there's plenty of bullshit like Jack. I think for me, the thing that insults me the most about Jack is really that whole ending sequence with him at, like, his graduation. And talking about, like, oh, you know, you have to just really grab onto life. And you, d- you oh. never know, like, and you can't worry all the time because, you know, you you could be me who doesn't have much time left despite the world being right in front of me. Ho ho. I don't, and all these 18 year old kids are going out to party and do ecstasy and get laid or whatever. <laughs> and Jack's joining them. <laughs> yeah, free grandpa. <laughs> What is he going to do with the kegger at your rich friend's mom's house? He could buy it. That's it. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. You guys have fun. I'm going to bed. It's six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sit on the plastic. Damn it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to go watch Perry Mason. Well, and especially that whole speech at the end. I remember around the time he like passed away, Robin Williams, mm-hmm. there was a tribute video going around that had that speech oh, underneath no. all the really? shots, like all the, like it was the big sentimental, like tribute montage. Like, like they had the audio of it going. Yeah. Throughout that whole thing, because oh, it's how manipulative. Oh, well, yeah, especially considering like that particular speech, like in a vacuum, like I could see that potentially like being somewhat heartwarming or in a movie that earned it. Like that speech really working. But the problem is this movie is like you mentioned, such a weird, whiplash of like oh hey this is like a tragedy about a child who's completely out of touch with the world around him because of this horrible disease that he has and then also wacky kids comedy where robin williams occasionally does fart jokes that that isn't earned at all by that like final speech that you didn't make that work at all for your story the growth of the character is he has a heart attack that's that's pretty much it that's the character growth. jack also has no personality he's just like i'm a generic 10 year old boy right that's- exactly that's who I am. Yeah, I gotta get to do all the things that adults get to do. And like we said, no ten year old kids like let's go get porn and get liquored up. Do, do we have any final thoughts on Jack? Because I think we've kind of said everything. <laughs> it's a tonal nightmare of a film. They're, they're, it doesn't know what it's trying to be. It doesn't know what it wants to be. The only thing in it is you are getting a pretty solid Robin Williams performance in it, even though it's completely misguided. But at least he's trying. It doesn't feel like he's just going through the motions or not giving a shit. He is trying. It just whatever he's doing doesn't fit with what they, what the movie's trying to be. But the movie doesn't even know what that is. Exactly, exactly. So it's like you just got Robin Williams. Hey, Robin Williams, he's doing a pretty good job. Look at him. Oh, he's wacky. What the fuck is going on here? Like it's just it's all over the place. It's just a garbage. It's a garbage film. I I, I got nothing for this one. Like, if I had to rate it, like, honestly, it'd be like a half a star, even there on a 1 to 5 or a 1 to 10. It's a half. You would definitely say this is the worst of a Coppola's filmography, probably. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I really, really do. And unfortunately, I think it's one of the worst of the Williams uh, filmography as well, and not because of him. It definitely fits around with, like, a Bicentennial Man, in terms of just, like, who the fuck thought this was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Um, I, my only other additional thought is something we haven't really mentioned. Uh, this is a Disney movie. This was a Disney-financed feature um, from around the time Michael Eisner was <laughs> the head of Disney, who thought, like, especially at this time, the, the big thing with Robin Williams and Disney was when Aladdin came out, um, They he said immediately, like, hey, I'll do this voice, but you shouldn't use me, like, as a prominent advertising thing for the movie. You can only use my name in, like, 25% of, like, the advertising or whatever. Um, and naturally, Disney was like, um, 
no, we're going to sell this movie. <laughs> so prominently everywhere, it's like, Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin. And he swore off them for a bit. And then they eventually got him to come back, and he did the third, like, the directed video Ugh. second sequel of yeah. Aladdin. Um, and then also, this movie was, like, the first big project he came back to Disney with. And just the baffling thing of, like, oh, hey, we're getting back Robin Williams. At that time, still a huge comedic talent. Still, like, a big box office raker. Um, we're gonna get him back. And this is what we decided to do. <laughs> Jack? This is what you're gonna uh. do with this dude? Um, it's, uh, it's pretty sad. Much like the movie is itself. That is the end of our discussion of our two features. And uh, before we do our picking for next week, stay tuned for that. Uh, we have some feedback to read because every Monday at DEDB Pod, which is our page on Twitter and Facebook, we ask all of you like, hey, what movies do you love or hate related to whatever topic we're doing? And so we asked uh, you all out there about your favorite and least favorite Francis Ford Coppola movies. And uh, we have a couple people who contributed. First off, uh, James Rodriguez says, The Godfather and Godfather. Father Part 2 are masterpieces, which makes it hard to believe that Francis Ford Coppola also directed The Dreadful Jack. Um, and then David Maynard says, Wow, I like Dementia 13 and The Cotton Club. I haven't seen all his films. Of course, Apocalypse Now is amazing, though I find The Godfather films a bit overrated myself. But his worst is easily Dracula. By far. He has an incredible cast and an amazing production, and it still turned out shit. I'd watch Jack any day. Who sent, that? Who, who, sent, who sent that one? Uh, David Maynard is his name, David. Okay. All right, yeah, yeah. let's uh, keep going, though. Uh, that, that was the end of the feedback. I don't know if you wanted to share oh, that's something. It. David Maynard, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, I, I, bro. Bro. <laughs> dude, come on, dude. You, you think Godfather 1 and 2 are a little overrated, and you think you'd rather watch Jack over Dracula. I understand all uh, opinions are subjective and right. film is subjective. And if you like it, you like it. That's fine. I'm here now to let you know that that's all wrong. No, you are wrong. <laughs> well, no, I think here's the thing. David's a friend of mine based on his comment that like, Oh, I haven't seen all these movies. Um, uh, I would, I would challenge that. He's probably not seen Jack. You literally don't think he's seen it. No, I don't think he's seen it. Uh, you know, Jack is on Disney plus. I would genuinely challenge David to actually watch Jack and tell me for a second. That's better than Dracula at all. Uh, cause I mean, we talked about Dracula obviously previously on the show and we're pretty big fans of that movie and all the weird decisions it makes. And more importantly, um, it at least has like, aside from like really Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, I don't really see what the issues are with that movie to people. I agree. No, I, I completely agree. And uh, to be fair though, they're really bad in it. So they I will are. give, I will give them that if that sort of sours your opinion of the movie. I understand. But no, I'm, I'm backing you up on this challenge. I want him, if he's never seen Jack, watch Jack and if he comes back with that same opinion then the the world's just it's just going to shit like everything's <laughs> that was the one indicator <laughs> yeah well, dude if someone chooses Jack over Dracula yeah that might be the indicator so I do challenge him to watch it. And, and plus, also, I'll say, I did see Dementia 13, actually, as prep for the show. That was his first feature. And uh, we didn't mention this, but Co he, Coppola, with that first feature, he was a graduate of the Roger Corman School, because that was a Roger Corman production. Um, and it's basically the story about this woman who, um, at the opening of the movie, um, basically acts, uh, gets her uh, husband to like have a heart attack on a boat. And so she's like, hmm, I need to pretend that he's still alive so I can get the family inheritance. And then she goes over to the family's, like, little get-together they're having and knows all sorts of weird stuff and a whole thing about a dead sister. I don't think it's a good movie. It's definitely a first feature. But at the same time, you can kind of see 
some of the interesting seeds of what Coppola would do later. Pretty bad. Not as bad as Jack. And it's it's curious if you're a completionist, especially. Um, and also, I kind of mentioned Rumblefish at the beginning of this, which is very interesting um, in, in terms of just, like, a weird sort of point. Even a one from the heart, which, if you don't know, like, the movie that bankrupted him, it's basically, like, a weird experimental, like, musical movie uh, mm-hmm. that's... Kind of like um, if you imagine a John Cassavetes movie mixed with like a Gene Kelly musical. Better than Jack, <laughs> right? I, it, <laughs> it's got it's got Raw Julia's in it, um, and Terry Gar and Frederick Forrest like the main couple. And weirdly, none of the music is actually sung by the characters, but cool. it's sung by um, there's this female artist I forgot her name, and then Tom Waits who wrote all the oh, songs. <laughs> yeah, better than Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I'm a Tom Waits fan. I dig Tom Waits. Hey, I, uh, Ty, he's hit and miss with me. I gotta be in the right mood for Tom Waits. What are you talking about? I'm sure that gravelly voice is just like such a big seller to everybody out there. Yeah, it's my morning alarm. Good morning, Adam. Go again. Jesus. And even though it stars a controversial figure, I would say uh, Captain EO is fascinating in terms of theme park history. Yeah, I saw that at the theater. Or, uh, at the theme park, yes. Um, and uh, th- that was like the highest budgeted theme park attraction of all time at that time. Um, mm-hmm. It's got a lot of people are involved with it that are interesting. Like uh, The 3D was awesome. Right, Angelica Houston and George Lucas produced it as well, um, even though it does star Michael Jackson. Oh my god, we're just getting hit in all the big ones tonight, aren't we? <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, um, but it, it's uh It's very interesting. Um, and then, as I mentioned kind of earlier, uh, Peggy Sue got married. Um, is one that I think deserves a bit more credit. It was around yeah, the time a of like a Back to the Future, um, and it kind of has a similar aesthetic to it, where it's like a woman travels back and kind of lives from her like sort of jaded perspective back to her like her fifties childhood, um, and how she fell in love with Nicolas Cage with a voice literally inspired by Pokey from Gumby, and he is really good in it. Like early Nicolas Cage is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Early Nicolas Cage, great. Mid career Nicolas Cage, ah, it starts to drag. Well, 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 what would you consider mid Nicolas Cage, though? Well, probably like eight millimeter, uh, Snake Eyes, Face Off, those type of movies where he's just con air, where he's so over the top. And then it kind of kept going into his direct to DVD releases. And now I'm arguing that late Nicolas Cage, like over the last two years, has just been fucking hitting it, man. He's been mounting a bit of a comeback between like a Mandy. Um... Well, he's just like. I, I know what I am, so fuck it. And he's just going nuts. Look, look, if there's, and it's if, working. There's any evidence that we should definitely do a Nicolas Cage episode. That's that's definitely oh, yeah. on the cards. Oh, at God, some point. it has to be. For and sure. we got nothing but time right now, <laughs> and a lot of empty slots to fill. Yes. And we also had a feedback in reference to uh, a couple episodes ago when we did our Max Monsito episode from Rafe Tells, should have not seen this, friend of the show, uh, says, kudos to you guys for tackling the seventh seal. You own how intimidating it can be to discuss a movie like that and make it a lot of fun. Uh, your snooty film critic bit made me laugh when I really needed it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, buddy. Yeah, he's, you know, me and him been talking here and there online. He's, you know, I think we can squash the beef for now. Which, to be fair, he wanted to create. Like, he wanted you to be the, his nemesis for some reason. I know, it's so stupid. What, I mean, that's a bad decision on his part. But I was game <laughs> for it, too. But it's like, hey, man, in light of current circumstances, I'll give him a slide. Lance Langford, on the other hand, eternal. Eternal, baby. <laughs> eternal hatred. Yep. That passion burns with a thousand suns. <laughs> it burns so bright. <laughs> um, but we do appreciate that. 
But um, thank you for that feedback, everybody. We also want to thank a few other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And we want to thank Emily Scarter for the art that is uh, used for our show. Uh, and we also uh, want to encourage you out there to find us on Twitter and Facebook, as I mentioned, at DEDVPod, where every Monday we post up those feelers about, like, hey, you know, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to a topic we're doing. And you can submit those two to uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And we want to thank everybody also for uh, submitting those topics suggestions, which we got plenty of them. We got a oh, lot yeah. of different topic suggestions, so uh, we'll definitely have some slots filled up in the future. We really appreciate that. Though, feel free to submit some still. Oh, yeah, keep them coming. Uh, you know, no suggestion will not be thought of. Like I said, the only guideline is that it's not something we've done twice already. All right. right. Yeah, knock right. them out. Um, and, uh, you can follow me doing my own individual musings and such on, uh, Twitter and Instagram at not the who's Tommy. Um, I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com for like reviews and such. And I also do the satirical superhero news at true superherofans.com. And, uh, you can hear me actually do a guest spot recently on, uh, Joel Copeland, who is a fan of the show. And, uh, we've read his feedback a couple of times. Um, I was on his podcast, Real Me In, where I talked about my top 10 favorite films of 2008. And that was a lot of fun. That was an interesting discussion that we had, and we. Uh... Oh, you were nice fan of the show, but you were the guest on it, not me. No, reach out to me, Joel, if that is your real name. I mean, to be fair, I reached out to Joel. <laughs> no, I just I yeah no I don't care. I'd have probably had to cancel anyways, knowing my goddamn luck. <laughs> um. Well. Hopefully, you might not cancel on this particular thing, where um, myself and Adam are poised to be on the latest episode, as this is being released, of The Horror Returns, where uh, they're doing a retrospective of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and uh, we were on board to talk about the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2, the start of their retrospective, uh, which I'm sure was a fascinating experience. I'm sure it's going to be something. Uh, I also want to throw out there, too, uh, by the time this is out, I will have been on the uh, Friday Nightmares podcast, uh, which is front of the show and a uh, couple times guest, I think three times now, Scott Crawford's show uh, with his friend Heather. Uh, so I will be on that. Just literally, we're just going to be BSing. I don't know if it's going to be a regular episode of theirs or like a bonus Patreon thing or whatever, but it's just going to be like, what have you been watching? A little bit of trivia, stuff like that. All right. Well, see, so you're getting around and I didn't mind that I wasn't invited to that either. Scott. Well, you know, he doesn't. He just doesn't like you, man. He's racist against Italians, I guess. I don't know why. I try to tell him you're not that bad, but he's like, no, no, he's probably related to Mussolini. And I'm like, come on, bro. I'll just to make him a pizza pie alone over here. <laughs> come on. He's the voice of Mario, Scott. <laughs> I think. I don't know what he <laughs> Real talk, the guy who does voice Mario, not Italian. I find that not incredibly yeah. offensive. Not at all. He also does a lot of different voice work. I mean, he voices, like, all the different, like, Waluigi and Wario and all those other people. At least give me Waluigi. I'll take Waluigi. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty simple voice to do, too. <laughs> Waluigi. Perfect. See? Call me up, Nintendo. Yep. Anyway. They're not, um, for, they're not calling. They're not calling. <laughs> for, for more great audition tapes like that, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms out there. And if you're listening on the ESO network, uh, why not? Along with digging into all the other shows that are on this particular network, uh, dig into our archives for the first several episodes we did before we joined them. And uh, you can also rate, review, and just share the show around. We would really appreciate that because that gets us more visibility out there. And especially, you know, right now, it might, you know, share it around, give other give people something to listen to, something new. 
to maybe take their mind off things. And I love being part of something that might do that for people. We both would. We would greatly appreciate that. Notice I said and Thomas didn't. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's me and Mario. Anyway. Wait, wait a minute. Why did Mario sound like that? <laughs> this, that's Mario on his off. He's just like you know, on stage in front of the video games. Like, oh, goodbye, everybody. <sighs> Where's my fucking cigarette? Where's my stogie? Tell him I want the 10 points on the bucks. <laughs> Don't pay me in those fucking coin boxes either. <laughs> Go get your fucking shine box. <laughs> Mario's my favorite side character in Goodfellas. Anyway, Adam, before we uh, leave, finally, we have to do our picking for next week. And, uh, you know, next week in honor of, interestingly, the digital release of Trolls World Tour, uh, which is fascinating. It's the first sort of uh, movie that was originally going to be theatrical, going straight to, like, the $20 rental. Um, for anybody to watch on VOD and such. That's probably a safe bet on their part either way, even without everything that's going on. The original Trolls made a shit ton of money. Yeah, but that was also, what, like four years ago? Also, for the record, Trolls, surprisingly solid for, like, a kid's movie. Super cute. It's very cute. cute. Yeah, perfectly fine, because that movie's very musical. We're revisiting a topic, and we haven't done since episode 11. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow, I didn't think it was that long ago. I know, it's been nearly 100 episodes since we did that particular episode. Crazy. Uh, We are going back to a topic that is near and dear to my heart, not necessarily Adam's. We are doing musicals. But, interestingly, because when we did that episode way back when, you had the bad and I had the good, we're switching off on that, where uh, Mm -hmm. you have the good and I have the bad. And I'm very fascinated, because as you mentioned in that episode, Adam, you're not a fan of musicals at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, not really. I, well, let's put it this way. I don't seek them out. If I see one I like, then I like it. But it's, it's kind of a deterrent for me, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of times. Right. Whereas I love a good musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so now it's time to do the picking, because if you're new, every week... Uh, you know, so we'll e- either one of us will have like a two bad or two good movies, and the other one will pick a number between one and ten in order to get close to uh, whichever movie of the two movies that the other person has. Uh, who and the other person's assigned those movies a number between one and ten. So, Adam, for your two movies, you've assigned number between one and ten for. I am gonna pick number three. Okay. At number two, it is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, so because when I was a kid, I loved the way the main character looked, and then I grew to watch it and love it, and plus all the backstory behind it, I have Phantom of the Paradise. Great! I love that movie. That's awesome. It's so good. It's so good. Great movie, yeah. And then number eight, I had the very recently released Rocket Man. All right, yeah, also fits as a musical. Great, great choices there, Adam. Hey, thanks, buddy. I did it for you. I did it for you. I knew it was you, Adam. I knew it was you. <laughs> oh, fuck but me. now, for my two bad yeah, choices. this is going to really suck. Probably. Um, oh, shit. All right, I'll go number eight. Well, at number seven, I have a movie from a production company we've covered previously on the show. Oh, God damn it. Is it the Golden Apple? Excuse me, sir. The title of the movie is The Apple from oh, 1980. God. From Canon Films. God damn it. <laughs> I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it was going to be one of your choices. I swear to God, I knew it. I was like, he's going to fucking throw in that goddamn Apple picture that he talked about. Okay. <laughs> That'd be fascinating, at least. All right, yeah, yeah, let's hear the other shit show. Um, a more recent shit show, a classic shit show, I would argue. One of the great, baffling Hollywood productions of all time, 2019's Cats. 
Oh my god! Thank God. <laughs> oh, because I'm not watching that. I am not even going to try to watch that. So I just avoided it. Unless our our fucking you know two or three year anniversary or two hundredth episode that was come back up. I will not watch that fucking movie. <laughs> oh, well. So I don't, oh. the Apple and Santa Paradise. All right. So we so, went old school for both of them. That's true. A we're, older. We're, we're traveling back in time to two classics of the genre. <laughs> yes. Uh, but until then, uh, you know what, Adam, it's time, uh, you know, why don't you just uh, sit down here? I don't have a wire on me or anything. Why don't you just tell me all your intimate secrets? No, I'm not. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. I'm not going to do that, motherfucker. <laughs> well, can you at least record a song about tigers for me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nine thousand of them. That's not sung by me. Well, we'll get right to that. Good night, everybody. Bye. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.